It's good to be with you again. It's been about a month since I was here last, but it's so good, it's good to be here in the, in, in the presence of the, the Lord with you. Um, I'm glad you're all back in this space again. I said it last time, this is most definitely the best worship space that Church of the Lakes has. The seats are padded. You know, I preached long last week, and I'm guessing a lot of people in the services wish they had these padded seats uh, when I was preaching last week. Don't worry, I won't be there that long-winded this week. But uh, we are on the front end of a Latin sermon series entitled The Real Jesus. And really this series, The Real Jesus, is part of our year-long initiative called Core 52. Uh, Core 52 is this push uh, by church leadership to help encourage us to raise biblical IQ as individual people, but also as a collective whole. And The Real Jesus fits into that initiative, although it being the Latin season, we wanted to also make sure we were focused on the season of Lent and, and, and what's uh, coming down the pipeline in, in regards to the Holy Thursday, the crucifixion of Christ, and, and certainly, uh, most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. Uh, but today is uh, the second week of the series, The Real Jesus. Um, in this particular series, what Robbie, Brian, and myself are trying to do is help build a comprehensive understanding of who the real Jesus is. There's a lot of versions of Jesus in our world, isn't there? There's a lot of versions. Uh, what are some of the virgins, uh, versions? Uh, precious moments, Jesus? It's a Jesus that makes cameos at high holidays like Christmas and Easter and funerals and weddings. Um, there's, there's genie Jesus. He, he's the one you put your quarter in and you, you get your prayer uh, request out of the vending machine uh, of heaven. Uh, there's tweetable Jesus, right? He's the one that's always on our side in uh, political and social issues, and we're very quick to weaponize tweetable Jesus on our social media outlets. Uh, what, what else? There's, um, there's uh, fairy tale Jesus. Uh, he's a religious myth. He tells a good story, but he's really not real. Uh, there's that. Fire insurance Jesus, right? Had a conversation with, with heaven, and, and we have secured our place in, in, the pearly, uh, in the other side of the pearly gates because of Jesus. There's Buddy Jesus. Remember Buddy Jesus? He's our friend, right? There's a lot of versions of Jesus in, in the world. Uh, listen, most versions of Jesus people love, right? Well, like if Jesus is just a good person or, or, or just a good teacher or even a prophet, people really love Jesus. They love him as long as you don't define who the real Jesus is. Right? Mormons and Muslims love Jesus. Buddhists and Hindus appreciate the teachings of Jesus. But friends, the minute we step over the line, the minute we as the church say, this guy is more than a teacher, more than a, a good man, more than a prophet, well, all the people that are willing to gather with us begin to, to scatter, right? They start to get a little uncomfortable. They start looking at us a little differently. You mean you think he's God incarnate? You mean you think he's the savior of the world, the messianic king? What I want us to do throughout this series over the next six weeks as a congregation at either campuses, I want us to step across the line, friends, and talk about who the real Jesus is. Personally, I want to live with the deepest convictions of this real Jesus and then order my life in accordance with those truths. And somebody that Jesus says that Jesus is, is the Messianic King. 
the Savior of the world, the Son of God. Let me kick off this message with a question that I want really weave throughout the message. And here's the question. Have you put Jesus in a box? Have you put Jesus in a box? Have you limited Jesus to your own level of understanding? Like, do you see Jesus only through the lens of, say, your culture, or your family history, or your race, or or some other social construct? Do you put Jesus in a box? Do you limit him to what our time and place in history can only fathom? And if so, what would it take for you to finally allow Jesus to to break through that box, to break through the mold that you and I maybe have placed him in? You know, throughout the Gospels, the, the authors give witness to the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. And, and what we see in the Gospels is Jesus trying to expand the minds of, his, of the people in that day and place as to what God's Messiah was about and what he actually looked like. You know, like us, 2,000 years ago, people settled into these specific lines uh, of thinking. They, they lived with their own presuppositions. They lived with their own preconceived notions. It really took a lot for Jesus to, to break them out of it, okay? He, he was sort of successful with the disciples, right? I mean, during his earthly ministry, they, they sort of got it every once in a while. Certainly after the resurrection of Jesus, they were sold out uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was who Jesus says he was, that he was the Messiah. But as they traversed through Galilee for three full years, they sort of floundered and failed, when it came to knowing fully Jesus' identity. Man, there is no message greater than the message of Jesus. Can I hear amen? No message greater. That's what Jesus' disciples then and now have truly come to believe. But even prior, again, to Jesus' resurrection, we see his disciples getting it every once in a while. Uh, one of those moments happened in Matthew chapter 16. It's, it's also recorded in Mark chapter 8. And it was a moment that Jesus took him way up north in the country of Israel, in Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was a place that was home to a a, a lot of uh, temples and altars to commemorate a bunch of the deities, gods and goddesses. So it's against that backdrop that Jesus asked his disciples the question, who do people say I am? And, And they came up with all the different versions of who Jesus was. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Still others say you're Jeremiah or even one of the prophets. But then Jesus asked a follow-up question. It's actually the most important question that he ever asked his disciples, and it's the most important question that we will ever be asked. The most important question, no, it's not what are you going to do with the rest of your life. It's not what career path are you going to take, what college you're going to get into, who you're going to marry, or what community you're going to live in. Those are important questions, don't get me wrong but they're not the most important question. The most important question that Jesus asks of his disciples is who do you say I am? Not who do the other people say I am, but who do you say I am? The disciple Peter's response, well, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter got it. In that moment, Peter got it. Jesus is pleased. He actually goes on to say later on in Matthew 16 that blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. No, this was revealed to you by my Father in heaven, and I tell you, you are now Peter. And on this rock, on this confession of who I truly am, I'm going to build a church, 
and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. That's some powerful words of Jesus. Let me digress for a moment. What in our American culture in this present time is trying to prevail against the church? What's trying to prevail, push against the church in this present time? Is it secularism? Cultural sensitivity? Is it political manipulation? Bad theology? Really all bad theology is secularism with a religious twist to it. I think in America we are seeing collectively a decline when it comes to the state of the church. Uh, There was a news article I, I caught my eye about a month ago and it was a news article that was speaking to how Christianity was going to be dead in only a few decades. This was the headline that caught my, uh, my attention. American Christianity might, might die off in the next three years. The writer of this article then, based off his own empirical evidence and statistics, started to argue as to, to uh, how the millennials and Gen Zers are no longer going back to the church. He even declared the church is dead. Jesus has lost. Then about a week later, revival broke out in a little town of Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury University. A revival that was led, can you guess it? By Gen Zers. Not by boomers, not by Xers, not even by millennials, but by Gen Zers. I had to laugh, church. I had to celebrate. The church isn't dead. Jesus hasn't lost. Because he said the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. Friends, what are we so worried about? The church will always stand. Now, allowing his mind and his his heart to be opened, pushing through his own presuppositions and preconceived notions, Peter, in that moment, in Matthew 16 and Mark 8, allowed uh, Jesus to be bigger than what he so often thought. He allowed Jesus to be bigger than that box he put him in. Did you hear what I said? Peter opened his heart and his mind to what could possibly be. He allowed the presuppositions, the preconceived notions to be challenged. And because of that, he actively, adequately defined who the real Jesus was. Let me ask again. Have you put Jesus in your own little box regarding what he can and cannot do regarding how, uh, him as Messiah. Let me give you a few questions and maybe, maybe this will help you uh, delineate whether or not you've put Jesus in your box. Do you really believe Jesus doesn't have the ability to save your broken marriage? If you don't think he's got the ability to do it as the Messiah of the world, you've put Jesus in a box. Or how about this one? Do you believe Jesus doesn't have the strength to deliver you from your addiction? The answer is yes, and you've probably put Jesus the Messiah in a box. Do you believe Jesus can can resurrect and restore your life even though you've made a lot of poor choices in the past? If you don't believe he can, then you've put Jesus as the Messiah in a box. Friends, Peter got it. The disciples eventually got it. I wonder, will we in the 21st century church in America get it? However, a group of people that didn't get it in Jesus' day were the religious leaders. So I'm going to pick on, pick on people like me for a moment, okay? The religious leaders were unwilling 
to open their hearts and minds to this new thing that God was doing in their time and their place. Now we know this to be true because of a conversation Jesus had with these religious leaders. On the Tuesday, hear this, the Tuesday prior to the Thursday he had his last meal with his disciples, prior to his betrayal and arrest and subsequently his crucifixion on Friday, a crucifixion that, that he willingly suffered for humanity's sin. This is the conversation on Tuesday. I'm gonna pick up the, the back end of this conversation Jesus has had with his, uh, these religious leaders and then I'm gonna fill in the context in a moment. But, but listen to the word of God. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think the, of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, if so, how is it then that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he also be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. In the scripture text I wrote, read, read just this moment actually has Jesus referencing uh, Psalm 110. Uh, actually, the first verse of Psalm 110, uh, which reads, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So for all of you who love Bible trivia, uh, Psalm 110 is actually the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament by not only Jesus but the writers of, of the letters to the early church. Psalm 110 is, is the most often quoted uh, New Test or Psalm in the New Testament. And the reason being is because it makes clear references to the Messiah. Now, since we're in the scripture memorization in this Core 52 initiative this year, Psalm 110 verse one is actually our memory verse for this week. So I want you to get comfortable with it, saying, at least, saying it at least once. So will you recite with me Psalm 110 verse one? Ready? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now in this text, if you see the first two lords in, in, in the, the first phrase, one of them has all capital letters and the one is just Alice capital, the rest is lowercase. When you see Lord all capital, that's a reference to Yahweh, Almighty God. And when you see Lord lowercase, that's a reference to a term called Adonai which can be used to talk about Jesus, but also talk about maybe an a, uh, earthly king. So, so this is the, the verse Jesus references in his question to the religious leaders of his day. So let me set some, some context regarding these re religious leaders. Uh, as the Gospels give witness to it, the religious leaders in Jesus were always at odds with each other. And the reason being is really because of the, the religious leaders' lack of understanding when it comes to biblical law and also their, their myopic view of God and what God can do. Let me give you an example. When it came to the Messianic king uh, of the Jews, the Jews led by the religious leaders were wanting some regal king who would charge into the holy city of Jerusalem on, on a white horse and just annihilate whatever foreign nation what they would deem as the enemy uh, that, that was occupying their territory. The, the Messiah would, would annihilate that enemy and then give this prized piece of real estate back to the Jews. The, the Messiah was a political hero, a mighty warrior. He, he was a, a regal king. 
He certainly wasn't a poor traveling preacher raised by a carpenter from some backwoods town in Nazareth. No, the Messianic king would surpass the might of David, would surpass the wisdom of Solomon. He would be greater than Moses. He would be greater than Elijah. Jesus, church, did not fit into their box. This is why Jesus and the religious leaders were always at odds with one another. Jesus was not the Messiah they wanted. Yes, he was the Messiah they needed, but he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. So, so prior to what I read a moment ago at the end of Matthew chapter 22, uh, it, it, where Jesus stumps the religious leaders on this question about the son of David, uh, prior to Jesus stumping them with that question, the leaders of that day, religi- religious and political both, tried to stump Jesus with questions, uh, referring to, to maybe political law or, or, or biblical law. And uh, the three questions that they tried to stump him with, the first was a political question from the political group of Herodians, and it had to do with taxes. They asked Jesus point blank, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Now they wanted to catch him because he was uh, uh, wrong either way, whether he said yes or no. If he said yes, it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, then basically the Jews who were following him as their Messiah would abandon him. He's not the true Messiah because he's being subservient to the state. But if he said, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, well, he'd be deemed an enemy of the state and therefore crucified for for not filing in behind Caesar. Well, Jesus understands the the, the motive behind this question, asks for a coin. And then he says to the people, gather, whose face is on this coin? Well, Caesar's. His answer was, then render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. They couldn't stump them. Jesus stumped them. Second question had to do with resurrection, and it came from a group of people called the Sadducees who didn't actually believe in the resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question about resurrection. Jesus refuses to answer the question. Why? Because he knows their motive is ill. He knows that there's nothing he can say to convince them that resurrection is actually a reality. So Jesus just doesn't answer them. Instead, he said, well, he does answer them, and he says in his answer to them, Listen, you don't understand the power of God or the word of God. And because of that, I'm not even going to humor your question. On to the next one. The third question Jesus is asked by the Pharisees of his day has to do with the greatest commandment in the Mosaic Law. Now, there's 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law. Jesus is wanting, uh, they're wanting Jesus to boil it down to one commandment. Well, Jesus actually boils it down to two commandments. They're very similar. And he says to the Pharisees and to those gathered, listen, all the laws, even the prophets, can be summed up in two commands. And you all know them, right? Love God and love your neighbor. Case in point, Jesus answers their questions. People are stunned by his simple yet profound answers. However, Jesus doesn't stop and walk away with a smile on his face. He wants to engage them. He wants to turn the tables on them. So he says, I got a question for you. Who's the Messiah's? Who's the Messiah's father? Or who is David? How do you say it? Who's the Messiah? That's what he says. And they respond, well, he's David's son. Okay, if he's David's son, I got a question for you. Why in, in, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit does David say, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand? Who is that? Well, because if David is talking about his son being the Messiah, why is he calling his son Lord over him? 
Jewish context, getting their mindset. A father is always greater than the son. Grandfather greater than the father, greater than the son, so on and so forth. So for David to call the Messiah Lord would mean he's not really David's son. He could only be one son, God's son. That's what Jesus is alluding to here. This is what's ticking the religious leaders off so much. Friends, here's the genius of Jesus in this moment. In this text out of Matthew 22, Jesus is redefining not only who he is for the Jewish people, but also this idea of your enemy. Again, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Going back to placing Jesus in a box, if you were a Jewish person 2,000 years ago, your enemy was Rome. And when the Messiah comes, he will conquer that enemy. Now this is true, God conquers political enemies, but the Messiah is not ultimately coming to conquer a political enemy. The Messiah is not ultimately coming to conquer the them in the us versus them argument. You define who them is for for, for you, right? Let me move it into practicality in the here and now. Friends, the ultimate enemy that Jesus Christ wants to conquer on our behalf is not the guy that cut you off in traffic last week, right? It's not the colleague who cursed you out as you left work on Friday afternoon. The enemy that Jesus, the Messiah, ultimately wants to conquer is not your overdramatic friend or your spouse that gets on your nerves every once in a while. I'll go so far to say this. Your ultimate enemy is not the addiction you can't shake. It's not the gossip you can't control. It's not even the resentment that is building up inside of you in unhealthy ways. Yes, these are all issues that need to be addressed, okay? Let's not pretend they're not. But they're all, in my mind, symptoms of a greater problem that we struggle with, a greater enemy that Jesus the Messiah has come to deliver us from. Church, the enemy that Jesus the Messiah would crush and make his footstool was a far greater enemy than any of those things. It was the devil. It was hell. It was sin. It was death itself. And to defeat that enemy? Oh, it would take more than might. It would take more than a silver tongue or a persuasive smile. It would take more than a lot of hard work. To defeat that enemy? It would take a cross. How did the prophet Isaiah say it about the coming Messiah? He says, Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises, by his wounds, we have been made healed. We have been delivered. In his sparring with the leaders of his day, Jesus references Psalm 110. It's this song of faith, church, that celebrates that God's warrior has won a battle, yet that battle looks nothing like we ever expected. You see, it was only through the cross that we can see God's victory and what that victory looks like. So, so instead of corpses being piled up in front of the Messiah, it was curses being hurled upon the Messiah. Instead of a, a warrior a king killing his enemies, we find a truer and better king dying for his enemies. 
How, how does Jesus put in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Friends, when Jesus calls us to love our enemies, he's not calling us to some standard that is above God, that is above him. No, he's calling us to love like he loved. Friends, that's how God wins the battle. That's how God secures the victory. Listen, Jesus may not have been the Messiah the Jewish people wanted, but he was most definitely the Messiah they needed. The same is true for us today. Jesus' Messiah may not be what we want, but he is most definitely what we need. Let me ask the question again. Have you put Jesus in a box? Maybe the more important question, who do you say Jesus is? Is he the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Or is he something else? It's the most important question you'll ever be asked. Even more important than what school you're going to go to when you graduate high school, what career path you're going to pursue, what you want to be when you grow up, what community you want to live in, what person you want to marry. The most important question you will ever be asked is who is Jesus Christ to you? Friends, my prayer and hope is that for all of us, we will respond like Peter responded. Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Friends, if we make that claim of victory, I promise you we will take hold of the victory that leads us to life. Amen? Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we know that you are the Messiah, the Son, the living God. We know that you would win the victory for us by going to a cross and dying for our sins. Lord, we can never fully repay you for what you did, but you don't ask us to. You only ask us to follow you, to deny ourselves and pick up our crosses. So, Lord, we do just that. We will open our hearts and our minds to your truths and under your grace and the proddings of your spirit we will faithfully follow even when none go with us. Forgive us, Lord, when we lose sight of who we truly are and who you truly are. When we are unwilling, forgive us, Lord, when we are unwilling to set aside our presuppositions, our preconceived notions. Lord, instead, create in us a clean heart, renew right spirits within us. We ask this all for our good, for our salvation, and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. And all God's people said, Amen.